So tonight again, we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse by verse. And we left off with David two weeks ago when he's fleeing from Saul. King Saul, his father-in-law, pursuing him. Saul's going crazy. God has given him the distressing spirit. The spirit of God is upon David. And while Saul's going crazy, God's allowing Saul's madness to refine David to be more and more hard after the Lord. So the one king that's rejected is being used for good in the life of the king who's being prepared, the second king of Israel, David. And that's the background we're at as we come into tonight. So we're in these chapters where Saul is going out of his mind, pursuing David, and just thinks the worst, and he gets the worst in the end. So chapter 22, we left off with David pretending to be crazy when he was amongst the Philistines with the, the Achan, Achish, the king of Gath. And then we read what David did next after pretending to be crazy. So chapter 22, verse 1, David therefore departed from there, the Philistine area, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, so he crossed the Jordan River. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart, go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. David's a fugitive and he's on the move. So he goes from being amongst the Philistines there in the low in the plains, the lowlands down by the ocean or the Mediterranean Sea, and he flees over the mountain range and ends up in the cave of Abdullam, and then goes over into Moab, which is across the Jordan River. Remember the whole story about Ruth was being in Moab. And so it's the other side, modern Jordan is Moab. And there he realizes, like, hey, not only is Saul a threat to me, he's a threat to my family because David's going to be the future king. So obviously, if you know much about kings and monarchs in Europe, they don't just kill the one who's going to be the king. They, king every, they kill everyone in the family. Like, you don't want anyone there in the bloodline. We've already seen this in the book of Judges that can claim the throne or be a remnant of the throne. And this is what happens with monarchs and kings and queens in human history. So David realizes, hey, my parents are at risk here because Saul's coming after me. So he puts them in a place of refuge. They, in essence, have to leave their life. They, they had the sheep. They had their life in Bethlehem, mind their own business. But again, we talked about this with Saul. When there's crazy people in charge and they're totalitarians, authoritarians, you just don't know what's going to happen, how you might be displaced, how your life changes. And so they go to Moab and they take refuge with David. But then the Lord speaks to David through Gad the prophet and says, hey, that's okay for them, but you got to go back to the Israel. You need to be in Judah. You need to be back in Israel. Judah, of course, the territory there in Israel where the tribe of Judah was. So David had just pretended he's crazy amongst the Philistines. Then he goes to the cave at Abdullam where 400 men gathered to him. And then he takes his parents and takes them to Moab. And then in Moab, Gad the prophet tells him, go back to Judah. So a lot happens here in these few verses 
but we want to focus here for a minute on the application of the cave of Abdullam. It's an interesting story with parallels to Jesus and the apostles, to the Calvary Chapel movement, church history, the way things work, how, how, how God works in humanity. Because David is the captain. He's the captain of everyone who's in debt, in distress, and discontent. By the way, if you're starting a church, you don't want to start it with 400 people who are in debt, distress, and discontent, right? That's like, that's like the hat trick of the worst thing that can happen when you start a church. In debt, so no one can fund the, the enterprise, if you will. <laughs> discontent, well, that's, you know, that's the worst thing ever. People are discontent, like just backbiting, sowing discord. And so here's David, the future king of Israel, and he's got these men that are, are in debt, discontent, and in distress. And by the way, even in the church, distress is something pressing, like, oh, pastor, oh, it's, it's urgent, it's pressing. Oh, it's just, oh, you need to help me. We're on the streets, or this and that, or my husband, or, and, and it's distress. This literally is the big three, like boom, boom, boom. And David's their captain. This is encouraging because we know the story that these 400 men are transformed by God as they hang out with David. And that's what good leadership does, whether it's women or men, that good leadership will elevate the people around them. When you have a heart for God, you're the perfect person to help people who are in debt, distress, and discontented. When you know that the bread is in fact common, as we talked about with the show bread over the last few weeks, that you have good sense, it's common sense, that you make friendships and covenants with people who are people of faith, that you see faith, that you know the Lord is your shepherd, that you go out and you charge the giant and you take his sword and cut his head off. When you're that kind of person, you elevate people around you. The captain of an army of 400 of men who are in debt, distressed, and discontented. And we also know, as we get into 2 Samuel, that from these 400 men, 30 men emerge that are amazing. They're the mighty men of David. They're recorded for us twice in the Bible, in the Old Testament. These mighty men who learn from their captain, their captain who had a heart for God, a captain who had faith, they learn from him. In fact, Eliezer is an interesting one of these mighty men because in account of him being the, the original three, the big three, because when you study the mighty men, we'll get to it. But what's interesting to me about that story is there was a rematch with the enemies of God in the very place where David defeated Goliath. It's a fascinating story. We don't really get a historical record of it, but we get the mention of it with the list of David's mighty men. It's the very place where David had defeated Goliath at a later time. There was another battle at the same spot, and the Israelite army ran, but David drew the battle line. David did not run, and we know that Eliezer, he himself did not run. So as the men were running, and David drew the battle line, that Eliezer drew the battle line. So we know that David and Eliezer stood there, and that's why Eliezer is one of the three mighty men, and they drew the battle line because David... You don't defeat Goliath at that spot and show up 10 years later to lose at that spot. Like, and it's in Israel. It's your promised land. It's your space. It's your calling. And so long as our hearts are right with the Lord, we can always know that when our convictions are matched up with his word and what's right 
and noble, true, just, and holy, and just correct, that God's going to always honor that. So from these 400 men who are in debt, distressed, and discontented emerged the 30 mighty men, including the kind of men who once they've hung out with the man of God like David for maybe years and watched how he handles things, see his strengths, see his weaknesses, see his failures, see his defeats, but see his growth and his heart and how he treats people because with the merciful, one will find mercy, and David was merciful, and that he didn't see God's people as people to lord over and to take things from or or manipulate to give things to like we see with Saul he saw the people of God as sheep he saw himself as a sheep under the shepherd that's why he said the Lord is my shepherd in Psalm 23 so he's this amazing captain of men who are in debt distressed and discontented along with their wives and their families so you think where are the women well ladies they're married to the men who are in debt in distress and discontented that doesn't sound like a good marriage either does it the man who has you in debt he's in distress and he's discontent. So you're really happy when your husband takes you and the family to go hang out in the cave of Abdullam with David because not only is he elevating your husband's faith, by doing that he's elevating your faith, and you're getting a better version of your husband as he hangs out with a captain like David, and it begins to flow from the top down. And even though you're on the run, and you're fugitives, and you're being chased by Saul, things are actually getting better. Because when we're learning to live by faith and we're taking steps of faith and we're learning to trust in the Lord in proactively and reactively in good things and difficult things, we're going in the right direction. And even though it could be like a, a hurricane around us or just tornadic activity around us, but when we're at peace with the Lord, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make, we're, we're, get, we're going to where we're supposed to be in our character, our person, and who we're meant to be. We don't grow in the easy times. We grow in the, in the excruciating times. And this is an excruciating time. And everybody's growing. Captain David is growing in his faith. The 30 mighty men are growing and the 400 men are growing. And as they serve the Lord, as they learn to trust in the Lord in these difficult things, these difficult things, they're a little bit less in debt. They're a little bit less discontent. And they're a little bit less in distress. They're learning to trust in the Lord. And instead of being the tail, they're becoming the head, as we studied in the law. Instead of freaking out, they're learning to trust. They're learning that God truly is in control and that the Lord is our shepherd. And he leads us beside still waters and green pastures. And that he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And we don't need to fear any evil. And he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And he anoints our head with oil. They're learning that in this cave. You don't generally learn this in the palace. You don't learn this on easy street. You learn this stuff in the difficult times where it's really happening. David, God just, God's plan for David is not a soft landing. God's plan for David is a refining through his entire life to be this amazing man of God. Also, with the cave of Adullam, we can't help but think of Jesus and the apostles, right? Because when Jesus called the apostles in the Gospels, we know they're just, well, like the TV show The Chosen, how it depicts the apostles. They're, the, 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 the drama they portray in the, in the series The Chosen between Peter and Matthew is, is very intriguing because you can picture it because Peter is a fisherman and Matthew's a tax collector. They're from the same town and the tax collectors abuse their power. 
Generally, they're bullies. So just that Peter and Matthew would come together in Christ and serve the Lord together, along with Simon the Zealot, who would want to execute Matthew, the tax collector. And there they are. Jesus didn't choose from the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the scribes. And we know the women followed and ministered as well. There's a whole team of women that were part of Jesus' ministry team. After all, they're the ones that were going to the tomb. They're the ones at the cross. Like, the women are there when the men are missing, right? We see that. But Jesus did the same thing. In fact, if you really look at the life of Jesus, we get 30 years pretty much of silence. Jesus coming into the world, the events when he was 12 there at the temple, the Gospel of Luke. Then we get him teaching the masses for about a year, the multitudes, and then the focus is on preparing the 12 for when he's gone. That's, that's the bulk of it, preparing them for when he's gone. And then a large portion of the Gospels is the last week, right? So you get the very beginning of Jesus. You get two years of really preparing the apostles and disciples for changing the world, and then you get the last week. These are the main things that you get in the life of Jesus. So when Jesus is talking with Peter, with John and James, like, hey, should we call down fire? He's like, you don't even know what spirit you are of. See, these are the things where you go from being in debt, discontent, and distress to becoming mighty men of God or mighty women of God. Martha Mary, oh, Lord, if you'd only been here, my, our brother's like, you know what? I am the resurrection and the life. This is where you go from being women that are in debt, distressed, and discontent. It's the Jesus style. It's spending time with the Lord. He, he moves us from a sin-based lifestyle, a self-centered lifestyle, a fear-driven lifestyle, an insecurity-driven lifestyle, to one of faith, peace, security, and calling, and conviction, instead of being cowardly in the, in the human experience, to become courageous in the human experience. Jesus completely changes our whole worldview as we commit our life to him and we become mighty in the Lord. That's what Jesus does. Because what does it say again in Philippians? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So strengthens me. He, 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 it's, it's God working in and through us for his good pleasure. So that ministry of the Holy Spirit, when we're born again and give our life to Christ, is not only to make us alive, but it's to transform us from being in debt, discontent, and distressed, whatever those things might be in your life to go from spiritual poverty to spiritual wealth. It's just, you can get all kinds of analogies as you follow me on this one, but like, we're a new creation. And our thinking's changing, our perspective's changing. We've passed from death to life, from hopeless to hope, from slaves to sin to slaves of righteousness. It's a complete flip. So really, when you think about it, in a lot of ways, when you come to church and you're going forward in the Lord, that's like being in the cave of Abdullam. God's just taking care of us. He's transforming us. That cave at Abdullam was to transform those men to become different men in their calling in the Lord. And those apostles being with Jesus was to transform them and make them different men in the Lord. They changed the world. They changed the world. What is the book of Acts? 
the history of the early church, the first 30 years, what happens? As they go from town to town, people who are cast out, they give their life to the Lord, they become different. Even when we read what Paul says to the Corinthians, you were this and you were that and you were this and you were that, but such were some of you, but now you're this and now you're that. See, it's a transformation. To come to this building week after week, month after month, year after year, and not be transformed, to be a greater woman of faith, to be a greater man of faith, to be more passionate for the kingdom and therefore calling of God, it would be to miss the whole point. To be the same person in 2023 in this building that you are in 2022 would be to miss the whole point of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and singing worship songs and the word working effectively as you hear it. Or getting together with other people with the supper together or going to the women's thing upstairs on a Saturday or at the men on the beach on a, on a Saturday. If you do these things and you're not moving toward the glory and the transformation, going from in debt, distressed, and discontented to a mighty woman of God, a mighty man of God, then you're missing it. I'm missing it. And trust me, a lot of people do miss it. We don't want to miss it. I don't think we're missing it. I think we're doing really well, actually. If we think of our life as a series of events in the human journey, we, we did a whole study on the journey itself, like one slippery step, you know, one step from death. David said we looked at life, how you live your life in the midst of that. But to transform us, because that cave of Abdullam was a place of transformation. They walked in the cave in debt, in distress, and discontent, and they walked out mighty men, mighty men of God. When Jesus called the men and the women, they were harlots, they were this, they were that. They were different things. They wept at his feet and wiped his feet with their hair and their tears. But when they came in the room, they came in this way, and they went out that way, and they were not the same. Mary Magdalene is not the same woman who was possessed by multiple demons early on in her life. See, so it's so obtainable. And again, I mentioned the Calvary Chapel movement. I've been shaped by a lot of books and influenced by a lot of books. But you could give a strong argument 30 plus years later that the book that influenced me more than any other book is the Harvest book that Pastor Chuck put out in 1987, where he has a testimony of all the Calvary Chapel pastors Greg Laurie, Raul Reese, Mike McIntosh, Steve Mays, Jeff Johnson, Bill Gallatin. When, when I read that book, in the autumn of 1987. And I read that book. I just couldn't believe that these guys were the guys. That Greg Laurie had seven stepdads, did all these drugs, hid gospel tracts in his drawer while fighting the Lord. You know, that Greg Laurie they're doing the movie on right now? That Greg Laurie that's filled Anaheim Stadium for 25 years? That Greg Laurie? Or that Jeff Johnson who now is fighting cancer. Did that Jeff Johnson? There's two things about his testimony that got me in the book. One, that he even say this, and that he even did this. He ran around the jungles naked in Kauai. When I went with my wife and we showed Sunriders at Calvary Chapel Downey, and I walked on those grounds that are still the grounds there, I just say, how does a crazy naked man end up in charge of a ministry like this? 
I'll tell you what, it gave me a lot of hope. It gave me a lot of hope for what God can do in my life. And she gave you a lot of hope. So from David's mighty men to Jesus and the apostles, to the men who shaped and founded along with their wives, who, of course, are amazing, all the men in the Calvary. There's some, the, some of the women in the Calvary Chapel movement are just absolutely incredible and amazing. It goes without saying. And so here we are. We're like, we're just the people of God in 2022. And we kind of did get thrown in the cave in 2020, didn't we? We all got thrown in the cave of Abdulam. Hey, why don't you stay there another year in 2021? See what that feels like. We got to be different. We got to be more like Jesus. We got to have more faith, more fiber, more passion, more giddy up. Man, just more, more RPMs on the engine. Just got to bring it. Because the devil's bringing it. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood outside these doors. We're wrestling against principalities and powers, and they're pouring it on right now. They are pouring it on. So you just got to match it. You got, you, got to bring, you got to bring the A game. We got to bring the A game. Come out of that cave of Abdullah, we can't be lukewarm. We got to come out with some fire. So bring the fire. That's how you win big in sports. You got to bring the fire. I watched all these surfers this week in the contest in Australia. I can tell right away when, in a man on man, which girl, which guy's got more fire. You can see it right away in the first wave. That, that, that girl surfing with fire. That one's just going through the motions. You can see it when you go to work. That guy's coming to work with fire. That guy, he's doing his job. He's tenured. No, that's not acceptable for the kingdom. Verse 6. God's preparing the mighty men to change the world. He's still doing it in the mighty men and women of the church of Jesus Christ right now. But there's always a Saul. Now we've got to go back to Saul now. Verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand. Oh, we're going to come back to that. And all the servants stand about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites, because remember, they're all from the tribe of Benjamin. Will the sons of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you conspired against me. And there's no one who revealed to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there's not one of you who is sorry for me. Or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is to this day. He's absolutely totally out of his mind. Verse 9. Then answered Dog the Edomite who was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all of his father's house, the priests who were in Nob. And they all came to the king, and Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the sons of Jesse, and that you've given him bread and a sword, and inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie and wait as it is to this day? This is how you answer people like this. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? Who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? You know, if you're going to say something about 10 minutes before you step into eternity, 
Say it with composure. Say it in the spirit. And say it with conviction. And leave it as your lasting mark on the human race. Ahimelech's about to be falsely executed. And what words of truth? What, what words of reason to try and help Saul understand his insanity? Who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of the Lord for him? For it be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to a servant or to any of the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. You know, if they're going to burn you at the stake, just say the truth. Like my son Luke always says, the truth is beautiful. It never changes. You don't have to make it up, and you never can, you didn't, you, it's not to be forgotten. It's easier to remember than falsehood. Remembering lies is hard, but just speaking the truth in a calm spirit there's just, I've always appreciated Ahimelech in this story. In other words, I think when you look at what's happening right here, there's people that push your buttons and they're out of their mind and they want to push your buttons and make you out of your, your mind. But, but Jesus gives us peace and he told the disciples, when you're brought before magistrates and these people and they say you're evil when you're not and all these things, Don't worry what you'll say. The Holy Spirit will give it to you. He'll give it to you that moment. Because we get so worked up, like, what am I going to say? Like, da 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 And you know what? The Spirit will give it to you. It's kind of like if you know you're going to give a speech the next day. Sometimes you can't sleep at all all night. But if I come up to you five minutes before I ask you to speak at your mother's memorial, it's all there for you like that. Right, Ethelyn? I knew she wouldn't sleep the night before if I told her, could you share at your mother's graveside? I'll save it for her. I won't even tell her at the, the chapel. I'll tell her we get graveside. Hey, why don't you share with your mom? And it was so anointed. This is a tough story right here. And it's a great injustice. And it's a reminder, too, that there are great injustices on planet Earth. The human race is filled with incredible injustices. Human history is one long record of injustices. And though people seem to get away with things in time, no one ever, under any circumstances, gets away with any injustice before the throne of God. It would seem we're surrounded by injustices right now in this country. But no one's getting away with anything. It's okay to be grieved, because what grieves the Lord grieves us. And if you're grieved, you should be grieved. There's a distinction between light and darkness. We should be grieved by darkness. But, but you can't let it frustrate you that, that somehow evil prevails. It's like the psalmist said, when I went into the house of the Lord, the Lord reminded me the end of the wicked and the end of the righteous. This is all the prequel to what really matters. Time, space, and matter is a prequel to prepare us for eternity, which is unchangeable once we step there and get there. This is all preparing us for what really matters. All injustice, like this story, will be set straight. Ahimelech keeping his composure is quite a testimony to all of us. When a raving lunatic madman is twisting truth, falsely accusing, and has a spear in his hand, it's almost like welded to his hand now, because the longer you hold on that spear, the more likely you'll be married to it. 
in a bad way. It's his identity now, the spear. Saw on a spear. It's his identity. Ahimelech, his identity. David has never done you wrong. Nor have I. And we speak the truth. There's a lot here. Little or much. Verse 16, and the king said, You surely, you shall surely die, him like you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also was with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to them. Tell it to me. He's wrong. We know that in the story. He's wrong. The priests never knew. David hid it from the priest. They never knew. Which just proves you can't reason with unreasonable people. You know, there are people in your world, in our world, that are absolutely out of their minds, and you cannot reason with them. You cannot make them see the truth. They are demonically delusional and sinfully self-deceived. And what's so clear to you with the mind of the Lord is so far from them in their darkened hearts and depraved minds that Romans 1 declares about them. And you would think you can make them see, but you can't. It's a spiritual battle, but people like Saul, you hope they get it. Ahimelech's thinking maybe he'll get it. People with power, absolute power. Hmm. He says in, in verse 17 in the back part, he says, but the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord, it says. So he's telling his servants to kill the priest. So in this story, Ahimelech's a hero. But now the servants of Saul are heroes. They're like, <laughs> they're like you know, you got to appreciate it. Because some people will follow really bad leadership right off a cliff into the abyss like the neighbors who betrayed their Jewish neighbors in Europe in the 30s. You know, Hitler wrote that little decree that made the Jews bad people in the early 30s. And then the Lutheran church officially made it a doctrine of their theology by the mid-30s, right about the time Jesse Owens was winning gold medals in Berlin. And it became the justification to everything they did against the Jews. And all those German citizens and all those other Europeans, the blood guilt's still on them. I often think what happens to Europe is still payback for things they did two generations ago. They betrayed their neighbors in common sense and what's morally right and wrong in the conscience and the soul of every human being. And they betrayed their neighbors and put them on those trains to those death camps. And Europe has never, ever been the same. Not even close. And you wonder, for the United States, how much blood guilt comes on our generation for everything. Time will tell. But the truth is the truth, and to walk in the light is to walk in the light. So the church isn't dependent upon human government to make us do what's right and walk in the light. We're dependent on Jesus Christ to know what's right to walk in the light. So even if the king tells you, execute the priest, I would certainly hope we all have good sense enough to know that 
That's not going to happen here. As much as they're afraid of Saul, because people were afraid of Saul, they were more afraid of the Lord. Did you notice that? Saul's like, and he's just, and they're like, they all knew, like, it's never going to be a good idea to kill the priests of the Lord, right? But it's amazing what you do when you compromise things and you, you, you surrender this territory, you surrender this moral conviction, you surrender this obvious right, and you make it gray and you muddle it, that before you know it, you're compromising the most common sense things that you would, your, your conscience would be totally against in a previous time. A little leaven does leaven the whole lump. Praise the Lord, these servants of the king would not go along with this. So, verse 18, but there's always someone like Dog the Edomite. And verse 18, and the king said to Dog, you turn and kill the priest. So Dog the Edomite turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also, Nob, uh, Nob, the city of the priest, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children, nursing infants, ox, donkey, and sheep with the edge of the sword. These kind of people, we see them in our own timeline right now. They're so evil. They're bloodthirsty, they're ruthless, and they're driven by money and greed. See, you think, how can people be so bloodthirsty, so cruel, so crafty, so evil, and so sinister in our day? Because they're driven by greed. They're driven by greed. And Dog the Edomite is in charge of the money. He's in charge of all the herds of Saul. And in an agri-society, the livestock is the wealth. He is in charge of the electronic currency, the treasury bonds, the ETFs, the mutual funds, the precious metals, the the energy supply, the real estate. He's in charge of it all. And he's not even an Israelite. So he's going to come in, and he's going to do the dirty work for King Saul. And he's going to kill the priest, their wives, their kids, their pets, their animals, everything. You look in our country right now and you say, how can people be this evil and this brutal and this unreasonable and this callous? This is how. This is how right here. Money. Planned Parenthood is money. It's big money. It's billions of dollars. It's your taxpayer. It's our taxpayer money. And they'll kill those babies. They'll rip those babies to pieces. They'll burn them. They'll sever them. For money, it's money. And they've seared their conscience and sold their souls. And God have mercy on them, and God have mercy on this country. I often look at these things going on right now, and I think what Billy Graham said, if God does not judge America for what we've done with the unborn, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. And Billy Graham, before he stepped in the grave, said, there will be a day of reckoning. And I often wonder, all the chaos going on on this planet right now, in this country with all this corruption, conspiracy, and deceit is the blood of the innocent and all the injustices coming upon this generation. And I'm saying what you're thinking. And maybe it's so, maybe it isn't. But just know this, God will always protect the righteous. And even if we're struck down like the priest, we're struck down with our integrity, our faith, our character, our convictions, and our conscience that's right with God. Because this is not our home. Our home is heaven. 
And ours is to stand and having done all to stand. Ephesians 6 says, put on the whole arm of God and stand and having done all stand. And that's what we're doing right now. And God bless all these people who are standing for righteousness in this country right now and aren't afraid of people like Dog the Edomite and Saul the king with spears in their hands and all the perceived power they think they have. Because Saul is just like Satan. His is a temporary power and David is just like Jesus. His is a coming power. Saul is a type of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. And David is a type of Jesus waiting for a second coming to establish the kingdom. The devil's days are numbered. And he can kill the priest, and he can have dog to eat might do the dirty work. But the day is coming. The day is coming. The king is coming. He's coming. Perplexities of nations, men's hearts failing them. It's all happening around us, WG, body of Christ. The king is coming. Verse 20. Now, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priest. So David said to Abathar, I knew that day when Dog the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. That's not necessarily true. You know, David gets a lot of rap for what went down with the priest. How could it possibly be David's fault? David was a desperate person in the previous chapter. Saul killed innocent people, and that can never be on David. But David's a true shepherd, where he's, he's, he's a true leader. But I've never read this verse in 34 years thinking David caused the death of these people. David would have done anything for these people. Saul and Dog the Edomite caused their death. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keliah, and they are robbing the threshing floor. Therefore David inquired the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keliah. But David's men said to him, Look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keliah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired the Lord once again. And the Lord answered and said to him, Arise, go down to Keliah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Kaliah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, took away their livestock, so David saved the inhabitants of Kaliah. Now it happened when Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Kaliah, that he went down with the ephod in his hand, the priest's robe. And Saul was told that David had gone to Kaliah, so Saul said, God has delivered him to my hand, for he has shut him inside by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Kaliah to besiege David and his men. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Kaliah to destroy the city for my name's sake, for my sake. Will the men of Kaliah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Kaliah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, see he's got 200 more now, arose and departed from Kaliah and went wherever they could. And then it was told Saul that David escaped from Kaliah, so he halted the expedition. Two things in this narrative. Less significant is the men of Kaliah. 
This is the human experience. You know, you help people, you do good for them, and they betray you. I'm sure you've all experienced that, right? You've all experienced going out of your way for somebody, doing a good thing for them, take, giving your time, your energy, and your resources, and they betray you. Like, that happens in life. It happens in your family, happens with your neighbors, happens at work, happens even in your friend and peer group. There are people that the Lord calls you to help and serve because David was called to serve these people of Goliath. He risked his life. He risked his entire group of men's lives to rescue their wealth from the Philistines. He rescued it, gave it back to them, and restored everything. David's a hero in this story. But the men of Goliath, yea, like Satan said, skin for skin, all that a man has will give to save his life. And the men of Goliath just, they're going to betray David. We can't take it personal when we help people and they turn against us and they work against us. People do different things, good, bad, and ugly, for different reasons. Probably the men of Kaliah were just afraid that they were going to come under Saul's wrath, just like the priest did at, at Nob. We don't do the good things the Lord calls us to do for the praise of men. We do it because it's the right thing to do. See, Colossians says, whatever you do, do hardly as unto the Lord, not unto men, knowing the Lord will reward you. So in this story, it's actually a very good work that David does. David becomes aware of, a, of an injustice and a difficult situation. He's got a small army, 600 men. They're getting stronger. They're getting better. And he becomes aware of the situation that God's people are being robbed by the Philistines. He's been fighting Philistines for a while. And he said in verse 2 that he inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said, yes, go attack. Then David's men were afraid, so David went back to the Lord a second time and said, do we go? And the Lord's like, yeah, go. So here's an interesting thing. It's kind of like husbands and wives. Husbands, just because you feel sure to do it doesn't mean your wife feels sure to do it. Or vice versa. Wives, just because you're sure you're supposed to do this doesn't mean your husband's sure. That's why I often tell couples, hey, look, you can go for anything new as long as the two of you have unity in your marriage. You know, move to Texas, move to Texas. Make sure you have unity. You're going to quit your job, start a new career, a new business. Make sure you have unity. As long as the two of you are in it together, you'll be fine. And it's interesting because you'll find that sometimes in a marriage, someone might have more vision and someone might be more practical. And the two work together. They, they balance each other out in the marriage. In this story, it's fascinating to me that David heard from the Lord, yes, go fight the battle. But his, his, his 600 men weren't so sure of it, right? David's like, hey, I spoke to the Lord. He spoke to me. We're supposed to go fight these guys and go rescue the, the wealth of uh, the people. They're like, mm, how are we going to do that? We're running from Saul. We're going to pick a fight with the Philistines? Like, for real? So he goes back to the Lord. God affirms it again. And then the second time he says, let's do this, then they're on board. So for those of you leading others in the faith, this is a good lesson. Let the Lord guide you. And give him room to guide others. Give him room to guide others that you're leading. Give him room to guide others. Let's all get on the same page. Board of elders, board of directors, the marriage, sports team. Let's all get on the same page and make sure we're going in the same direction together, knowing that the Lord's called us to do this. Very important. And by the way, David sought the Lord twice, and the Lord spoke to him twice. So did he speak to him out loud? How did he speak to him? Well, we know the Lord speaks to us through his word. We know he can speak to us in our prayer time when he puts a thought, an idea in our mind. 
coming from being with the Lord. He can speak to us through godly people. Like Gad already showed up in this chapter. Like, hey, you know the previous chapter. Like, hey, go back to Judah. So he can speak to us through godly people that are sent by the Lord that would confirm his word and and, and avail it to us. God's going to guide us. A.W. Tozer's book is called God Tells the Man Who Cares. God Tells the Woman Who Cares because he does. If we inquire the Lord, God will guide us. And David, you don't go pick a battle with the Philistines unless you know the Lord's called you to do it. So you seek the Lord, trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not under understanding, acknowledge him in all your ways, and let him direct your path. And that's what David did here. And then also he got the, the, the priest's robe from uh, Abimelech, excuse me, not Abimelech, uh, Abathar, brought the ephod, the robe, and David said, okay, look how personal his relationship is with God. So God, um, is this going to go this way? Like, uh, is Saul going to come to this city? Yes, he is. Are these men going to betray me? Yes, they are. Like, God has a scouting report. That's the beauty of our lives. Whatever we're facing, God knows what we're going to face before we face it. Like, Lord, I really don't know what these people are thinking. Well, the Lord knows what they're thinking. And he's got her back. So here we see how important it is to really seek the Lord, to seek, knock, and ask, to be anxious for nothing, but to, to seek him and, and let him guide our steps and direct our steps. Verse 14, and David stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains of the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him to his hands. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. How refreshing is this? In the midst of all this stuff, here's David and Jonathan again. Jonathan goes out of his way, risks his life to go visit David, to encourage him, build him up. And what does he speak? He speaks truth. He speaks blessings. He speaks promises. That's what real friends do. He speaks truth, blessings, and promises of God over his life. We want to be those people. He didn't say, you better hide from my dad. He's coming for you. He's going to cut your head off. And he's like, hey, you're the king. And when you're the king, we're going to be together. And you know this, and I know this, and God's got this. He speaks truth. He strengthens his faith. We want to strengthen one another's faith. He speaks truth. Strengthens his faith. They can't hang out in the palace anymore as best friends enjoying the call of God on their lives. But props to Jonathan yet again goes out of his way to encourage David and build him up at the risk of his own life. Such chaos in the palace, but Jonathan stays true to the word, risks his life, speaks blessing, speaks the truth. Alas, he would not be next to David, but David would be king. And that was truth. Verse 19. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods, in the hills of Hakalah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part will be to deliver him to the king's hand. And Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Please go and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is, who has seen him there. For I'm told he's very crafty. See, therefore, and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And it shall be, if he is in the land, that I will search, out, I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. 
So they rose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain of the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, that he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. And then Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David, went against the Philistines. So they called that place the Rock of Escape. Then David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds of En Gedi. Yet again, another city is going to betray David and hand him over. What a difficult time it was for David when you just, next time you feel like everything's going against you, just think about the story of David. Yet God preserved him. And here's a key thought to leave on tonight. The rock of escape. Yet again, we're reminded that when it all is closing in around us and it seems like there's no way out and we really are boxed in, God, God's not done until he's done. There's always a rock of escape because Jesus is our rock and he's got the escape. It's like with sin. No temptation is overtaking you, but such is common to man who with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Jesus is always a rock of escape for temptation. He's the rock, the God who's our comfort in times of sorrow. He'll never give us more than we can handle. So we're reminded when David had no control over the situation and David was helpless and really like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Like, we are surrounded. The, the gig is up, if you will. Yet, God sends the messenger with a report to Saul, the Philistines are in the land, and Saul leaves. Ultimately, our deliverance is always going to be from the Lord. We can have a good plan. I'm all for good plans. They're better than no plan or a bad plan. And if you seek the Lord, he give you a plan. You can adjust the plan. But the plans of mice and men, sometimes the plan just... We end up, Saul's coming, and there's no way out. And it's sort of like, if I live, I live. If I die, I die. Like, this, this is it. But in the end, we need to be reminded we are invincible in the will of God, in the call of God, until he's done with our life. And for a man that's had a loaded gunpoint at my head, been in 50-foot open seas, and escaped, life on other, uh, escaped death on other occasions with my life, I can assure you, God's not done until he's done. He's not done till he's done. In his will, we are invincible. And if we're being wronged by other people in his will, it might be the way it ends, like it did for Abathar. But it might not end that way for us. We might get the rock of escape. But either way, whether we're cut down by dog to Edomite or we find freedom at the rock of escape, know this, he will never leave us, nor forsake us, ever. Whatever we face, dog the Edomite with his sword or the armies of Saul coming from both sides of the mountain, whether we're cut down or we walk away to live another day and see another day, he will never leave us or forsake us. And that is our comfort. That's our peace. That's our assurance. And that's absolute. So while things might be grievous in your personal life, things might be grievous on planet Earth, God is with us. He's on the throne. He's in control. And we're going to keep looking to him, the author and finisher of our faith. So be encouraged. 
Be people who speak life, people who speak blessings, people who build up, people who encourage, people who see the best. Get from distress, debt, and discontent to the place of mighty woman of God, mighty man of God, and, and just let's keep going forward.